0: You're listening to Purpose Inspired, a podcast series by myself, Wayne Visser. This season is based on my book, The Quest for Sustainable Business, an epic journey in search of corporate responsibility. Humans and Ecology, from new age to new economics. Experiments in Community Business. In this episode, I trace my physical and intellectual journey in and out and around the UK, where I've now spent much of my academic and professional life. It takes me back to when I started my career, to 1992, when I just graduated and completed my management traineeship in Kingston, Ontario. After leaving Canada, I went to the UK and did a three-week tour of Britain, which included visiting the Northern Scottish Community Experiment in Findhorn. By then I had read Paul Hawkins' controversial book, The Magic of Findhorn, so I was well aware of its reputation as a hippie-style community that, among other things, claimed to communicate and collaborate with nature spirits. I was more interested in how they were applying spiritual principles to commerce. This began with the establishment of new Findhorn Directions in 1979, a legal entity designed to serve as a framework in which private enterprise initiatives could emerge without violating the charitable status of the Findhorn Foundation itself. Subsequently, many promising business ventures were initiated, though not all have succeeded, nor have they all chosen to function under the umbrella of NFD. Those in operation when I visited included the Wood Studio, Bay Area Graphics, Findhorn Bay Apothecary, Weatherwise Solar and Alternative Data. They also had a pioneering eco-housing project which included houses made from whiskey barrels under the leadership of John Talbot. The unique characteristics of these companies were that they were all trying to demonstrate their broader community philosophy of spiritual management and work as love in action. Can we learn anything about business responsibility from these somewhat fringe ventures? The common objective in places like Findhorn in Scotland and Mondragon in Spain is community and environmental improvement, including through business activities. They are not hungry for short-term profits, rather they are pursuing long-term sustainable development strategies. The desire is to be autonomous and self-sustaining, and most of all to promote local self-development rooted in history and tradition. These two examples serve to illustrate that success stories in alternative ways of doing business do exist. The details of exactly how they are different, however, still need more thorough exploration. First, a different set of values underscores community businesses. For instance, money is made to serve human development and not vice versa. The business is a means of human and community development and not an end in itself. Work is seen as an opportunity for creativity and personal development, as well as a contribution to serving the needs of society. Democratic action and consultation are encouraged, while integrity and competence in the management and conduct of business, as well as effective leadership, are considered necessary disciplines to be learned. There is also sensitivity to and solidarity with the local community as a prerequisite for business operating in any particular area. In order for these values to be translated into action, however, a community business needs to employ different structures to those traditionally used in private enterprise. For instance, there is a difference in ownership. Whereas conventional companies are owned by shareholders who may live anywhere, the shareholders of community businesses are people who live in the area where the company operates. The distribution of profits is also different. Whereas the traditional company tries to make a profit to return to the shareholders wherever they may live, the community company aims to use its profits to start new local businesses and to improve life in the local community. The benefits of the community business approach are readily apparent. Since its focus is local, a community business is more sensitive to local needs and opportunities in a way that traditional companies may not be. With the emphasis on people rather than on money-making, a community business will naturally be more responsive to human development in its staff and in its community than has been customary in the past. It would be a mistake to assume that these ideas are conclusive or easy to implement. On the contrary, growing spiritual businesses is an open-ended and challenging experimental process according to one of the past focalizers of the Findhorn Foundation and partner of the Alternative Data Software Company. As he put it, I thought meditations on Monday mornings and being nice to customers would do it. Instead, I had to deal with intense personality conflicts in a system where power is equated with money. Yet there is great excitement. All the problems have to do with perceptions of power power to stifle and manipulate, or to create, enliven and challenge. There is no other way of dealing with power issues except by bringing them out and working them through until there is some result. Integrating business into an emerging community vision seems a natural path of societal evolution. Eco-villages and sustainable communities A few years later, I was back in the UK to begin my studies in human ecology and back in Findhorn to attend a conference on eco-villages and sustainable communities as models for 21st century living. It was at this conference that the Global Eco-Village Network was launched with 12 members to serve as an umbrella organization for eco-villages, transition town initiatives, intentional communities and ecologically minded individuals worldwide. Immediately following the Findorne Conference, I joined my fellow master's students in the warm enclosures of an old manor house in southwest Scotland near Dumfries called Lauriston Hall, home of an intentional community of 23 years standing and host to Reforesting Scotland's annual conference. As a pre-event to the conference, a group of us went on a Buildings in the Forest study tour, visiting a thatched hut, a log house retreat, apparently the largest log house in Britain, a crock-frame barn, and a tree house 15 metres high. Almost fascinating indeed. To give some idea of what these sustainable community experiments are like, let me describe Lauriston Hall. When I visited, it was home to about 30 residents who appeared to have found a healthy balance between living in community and giving sufficient autonomy for pursuing individual interests. They collected their own firewood for heating and raised sheep and cows for slaughter, but also relied on products and services from outside. Most found employment in the nearby village, although some worked on organising events hosted on the premises. As with many of these eco-villages, Lauriston Hall is located in exquisite natural surroundings. I wrote in my diary at the time, a walk through the mostly native forest adjacent can only be described as magical and enchanting. Bright red and white spotted fairy mushrooms, orange and yellow lichen, sparkling drops suspended from sun-showered trees like a fantastical web of light Velvet moss cushioning tree bark, and torrents of water gushing down on its way to the rippled expanse of a loch. I must confess that despite these eco villages being all about going back to nature and practicing brotherly or sisterly love, or maybe because of this, I have always had slightly cynical views about their value. They seem to me somewhat isolationist, a throwback to the hippie generation not engaging with the real challenges of urban living, widespread poverty and mainstream careers. Apart from Findhorn and Lauriston Hall, I had previously also visited the Centre for Alternative Technology in Wales, so my opinions were not formed entirely in ignorance. However, during my year in Edinburgh, I challenged myself to study these intentional communities in search of lessons to be learned. In the end, I came to the conclusion that these eco-villages were vital experiments in what I started thinking of as community-centred economics. The Emergence of New Economics In a paper I wrote on community-centred economics for my master's degree, I explored the writings of former World Bank economist Herman Daly, and community activist Helena Norberg-Hodge. They claimed that there was a direct link between the advancement of industrial development based on neoclassical economic thinking and the erosion of communities. While Daly argued convincingly from a theoretical perspective, Norberg-Hodge took an anthropological approach telling the story of how modernization and economic development had taken its toll on the cultural integrity of the Ladakhi people in northern India, bordering on Tibet. This erosion of community, they argued, exacerbated numerous other social problems and created negative effects such as economic dependence, community disempowerment, cultural breakdown, social diseases and environmental destruction. A more community-centered economics, by contrast, would embrace concepts like person-in-community rather than free-rational, utility-maximizing individuals, as well as self-reliance, counter-development and eco-communitarianism. On a more practical level, the establishment and support of community businesses and local currencies or exchange systems would be encouraged. The benefits of this community approach, it was said, included wealth creation, empowerment, social cohesion, ethical conduct, sustainability and fulfilment of human needs. While I remain unconvinced that we should all seek out a pastoral community enclave in the wilderness, I was persuaded during my year in Edinburgh that the Western economic system and the process of trade liberalisation has serious shortcomings. What is more, a powerful new vision of economics seemed to be emerging. Its founding fathers were E.F. Schumacher, author of Small is Beautiful, and Herman Daly, author of Steady State Economics. While a new generation of leaders had taken up the cause, people like James Robertson, author of Future Wealth, Hazel Henderson, who wrote Redefining Wealth and Progress, and Manfred Max neef author of Real Life Economics, and Paul Eakins, who wrote Wealth Beyond Measure. In 1984, Eakins and others like Jonathan Porritt had set up TOES, the Other Economic Summit, which later became the New Economics Foundation, to offer an alternative perspective to the neoliberal agenda of the G7 summits. There was a real buzz of revolution in the air, and I wanted to be part of it. I was convinced that this approach, changing the economic rules of the game, had far more potential to change the world than hiding away in eco-village experiments, although of course they also have their place as innovation hubs. Some of the ideas of what came to be known as the New Economics Movement never gained traction, proposals such as the guaranteed citizen's income or a Tobin tax on speculative currency trading. Other ideas, however, offered practical tools and viable policy alternatives that resulted in far-reaching changes. Social accounting and responsible investment At the New Economics Foundation, Simon Zadek, who I met at the time, had been working with the fair trade organization Tradecraft to develop new social audit methods. He recalls that they discovered and grew a community of like-minded folks, like folks from The Body Shop and Ben & Jerry's, who likewise were experimenting with social auditing, but also people like Alice Marlin and John Elkington, Jane Nelson and others, focused on social accounting to promote ethical consumerism and improved labour standards, notably in the emblematic apparel and footwear sector. This led to the establishment of the organisation called Accountability, nurtured within the New Economics Foundation and then spun out on its own, with a mission to advance the noble art of social and ethical accounting, auditing and reporting, advanced in theory by people like Rob Gray, but only marginally in practice at that time by mainstream business. As Zadek later reflected, whether accountability catalyzed change or rode on its skirts is a moot point often hard to deal with scientifically, But what we do know is that huge strides have been made over the intervening period in advancing the practice of what we might today call sustainability accounting, auditing and reporting, with methods, standards, professional qualifications and, in some areas, the rule of law all driving the volume of practice and, in some respects, the quality and its impacts. In less than two decades, the pottering side events of tradecraft, Body Shop and a few other unusual institutions have transformed into a global industry and practice supported by new institutions. These new institutions included the likes of the Global Reporting Initiative with its Sustainability Reporting Guidelines, Social Accountability International with its SA8000 standard, Transparency International with its Corruption Perceptions Index the Extractive Industries Transparency Initiative, the UN Global Compact and the Carbon Disclosure Project to mention but a few. Another field that was rapidly advancing in the mid-1990s was Socially Responsible Investment or SRI, in no small part due to the efforts of indefatigable pioneers like Amy Dominey, Tessa Tennant and Steve Leidenberg. In 1980, when Amy Dominey was working as an American stockbroker, she began to notice that some of her clients weren't happy to invest in certain companies, such as large defense contractors and tobacco companies, whose policies they disagreed with. They questioned whether it was possible to pursue their investment objectives without violating their conscience. As a result, in 1990, she set up Domini Social Investments, and established the Domini 400 Social Index, which tracked companies that had been screened using ethical criteria. Tessa Tennant, who the Independent described as the mother of green investment, had a similar story. She founded Britain's first green equity fund back in 1988, and went on to establish the UK Social Investment Forum and other similar initiatives in Europe and Asia, as well as heading up SRI strategy for Henderson Investors and serving on advisory boards for the UK Government, His Royal Highness the Prince of Wales, the Calvert World of Values Fund, and the UNEP Finance Initiative. Steve Leidenberg's focus has been on the SRI data needed to support sustainable investment screening. He was a founder of KLD Research and Analytics and provided some intellectual guidance for the movement in his books, Investing for Good and Corporations and the Public Interest. By the time I finished my year in Edinburgh, having completed my Master's in Human Ecology, I was determined to take the new economics and human ecology revolutions to South Africa. This led to the establishment of the South African New Economics or SANE, Foundation, and then to setting up and running KPMG's sustainability services, both of which I spoke about in other episodes. Certainly, I made some progress in placing these issues more firmly on the South African map, but maybe it was the lack of my hoped-for revolution that eventually brought me back to the UK to start a PhD which is where we hop into in the next episode.